0: Uh, We'll hear argument now, number 91 rather rather, 01963, Norfolk and Western Railway Company versus Freeman Ayers. Mr. Phillips.
1: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. In 1997, this court recognized that there is an asbestos litigation crisis confronting the nation, and nothing in the last five years has done, done anything other than to show that that crisis is more acute now than at any other time in our history. The RAND Corporation, in a report just two months ago, concluded that there are now 6,000 defendants confronted with asbestos litigation claims, that the estimated value of those claims and litigation costs exceeds $200 billion. The six plaintiffs who are involved in this case, the respondents here today, are emblematic of at least a fundamental element of the problem that confronts asbestos litigation. Each of them received close to, and in some instances more than, a million dollars in compensatory damages for claims of asbestosis. The basis for their claim, the primary basis for their claim, was that they confronted a fear of cancer. Asbestosis does not convert into cancer. How
2: how do we know that? I mean, I noticed that the uh, uh, the, uh, awards there seem to grow with age, and they don't seem to vary depending upon smoking. I mean, they're inversely related to age. They don't seem to be affected by smoking. And that suggested to me that maybe it didn't play a major part, this fear of cancer. How how do we know that it played a major part?
1: Well, there's a legal answer and there's a factual answer. The legal answer is that you have to assume it because the jury was instructed to include it as an element. And under West Virginia law, it is absolutely settled and respondents don't contest it. But But the the fact is
3: one element doesn't mean it's the primary element, does it? They did all suffer uh, physical impairment as a result of the asbestosis itself, did they not? they, They all suffered
1: asbestosis, and they all suffered some physical imp- elements and of it. how do you it, know
3: that the physical impairment was not the primary uh, ingredient in the jury verdict?
1: I don't understand. I, I don't know that it's not the primary ingredient, Justice Stevens. What I do know is that as a matter of law, you can't ignore the fact that, the, that fear of cancer was put before the jury as a significant component of the plaintiff's case in chief that the jury was instructed to include that. Yes, but you
3: said it was the primary element of damages, and that's what I think Justice Breyer and I are wondering, whether the record really supports that. Well,
1: I think the record supports it in the sense that we know that these are asbestosis claims that even the respondents' expert testified were mild for the most part. One or two differences about that. But these are still relatively mild asbestosis claims, and mild asbestosis claims do not typically generate million-dollar Damages awards, particularly where there is no cost of, of uh, medical care
4: com- Phillips, as part of the component. the defendant attempt to test this by seeking the special verdict so that the damages could be broken down by the jury? And this was a general verdict, so we don't know how much they gave for anything.
1: Uh, no, the, the defendant didn't. Ask, the defendant did not ask for that. What but the have, defendant did ask for, Justice Ginsburg, was to have fear of damages eliminated as a component of the case. But they in could a case
4: have. Like they tested this, isolated this, and then we'd know how much was actually allocated. Whether it was, as you initially said, the primary or whether it was a lesser thing. We just don't know.
1: Oh, and that's because it's the plaintiff's burden. If they didn't want to have, if they didn't want to take the risk of a general verdict being set aside because there's an element of damages that's included that the court ultimately decides should be excluded as a matter of law, they then bear the risk and the burden of having the case sent back for a new but trial. The, the, ra- the
2: relevance of this, I think, to your overall point, in my mind, is that the other side would say, I think they do say, that this is a case in which there was an impact and as a result of the impact, the thickening of the lungs, the person does have a fear of getting cancer greater than most people, That that entitles them under traditional law to some damages. And where you can get a special verdict, it's easy to see if the jury has awarded too much damage for that, in which case you get a reversal under, uh, you get a reversal if they give too much for it, And uh, so what's the problem here that has anything to do with there being 6,000 plaintiffs and enormous uh, 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 damage and problems overall?
1: Well, the problem is easy to identify. That is, that if the instruction is that everyone who suffers a diagnosed case of asbestosis is entitled to go to the jury on fear of cancer claims, then the amount of damages that will be generated as a consequence of that will, will run completely out of sync. Why? With any why why would it? Why,
2: why? Maybe they're entitled to some fear. A person who has an, no problem in the world has a one in four chance of dying in cancer. A person who's subjected to asbestos may have a one in three chance. But, but this court does that. That gives them entitlement to some little amount anyway.
1: Justice Breyer, you said or the court said in Buckley that you don't analyze these issues case by case. What you have to do is make a judgment about the category of cases that's based on the policies of the Federal Employers Liability Act. And the Mr. Phillips, uh,
0: under West Virginia practice, is it uh, uh, if, if a plaintiff or defendant
1: requests a special verdict, is it automatically allowed or is it in the discretion of the trial court? It's in the discretion of the trial court. And it is also clear under West Virginia law that if two theories are put before the jury with respect to damages and one of them is impermissible, the answer is you strike down and, and you get a new trial on damages. So that's, that's clear. And I don't, I don't hear the respondents is arguing
5: anything to the Mr. I'm, Phillips, uh, do we look at this case as one uh, of a claim for traditional pain and suffering damages? Is that how we should view it?
1: No, this court said and got you all that, that pain and suffering damages are describable as sensations stemming directly from a physical injury or condition. The physical injury that, that's identified here is asbestosis. Mm-hmm. And to be sure, the pain and suffering that a, a, an asbestotic would be allowed to recover for might be a fear of shortness of breath or other symptoms that arise out of asbestosis. But the notion that cancer that doesn't exist currently may never take place stems from the existence of of asbestosis is not a fair fair application of that rule of law, particularly when there is no evidence, and again, I don't think respondents challenge this, that asbestosis does not cause cancer, does not lead It
5: sounds like you want us to say there is some limitation on the availability of pain and suffering damages in the context of an asbestosis case. It would be something different than one would think of in a traditional pain and suffering case.
1: Well, I think it's the respondents who are asking you to do something different with a pain and suffering case. And actually, I'm not even sure that's a fair way to characterize the respondents' argument. I don't understand them to be arguing that this is a classic pain and suffering. Well, I'm trying to find out
5: what you're arguing.
1: Right. My argument is this is not, under any circumstances, the kind of pain and suffering that we traditionally think of. It's not something that emanates directly out of the existing injury. Second, it's not negligent infliction of emotional distress, and it's not emotional injury as a component of a negligence claim.
5: Well, um, it, what, was, it, was the case presented as a separate claim for negligently caused emotional distress? No, it was. No. It was. It was. I, it was a pain and suffering argument. That's what it was.
1: Well, it wasn't clear exactly what it was until, the jury, until we got to the jury instructions. At that point, the trial judge did say, "I view these as pain as and pain suffering." Pain
5: and suffering. I yes. mean, I thought that was what we were confronting.
1: Well, except that the, the traditional standard for pain and suffering doesn't permit the kind of disconnect between the fear of cancer that you're talking about here and asbestosis. You normally associate pain and suffering as sensations that emanate directly from the injury itself, and fear of cancer doesn't it emanate can,
5: at all from asbestosis. It can include fright.
1: Fright from asbestosis, to
5: be yes. sure.
6: Is it, is it conceded? You, I think you said it was conceded, but is it conceded that... Uh, Fear of cancer does not emanate from asbestosis. If it's clear that you have a greater risk of cancer if you have contracted asbestosis... Why isn't the why isn't the fear connected to the asbestosis?
1: Well, it's interesting. You know, the testimony itself was simply, "Do you have a fear because of exposure to asbestos?" Now that you have asbestosis, they didn't. They didn't even ask the question whether the fear arises out of the asbestosis. Did you
7: Did, did you ask questions about the causation theory that you're now uh, espousing?
1: No. Our Our, our argument, Justice Souter, was that fear of cancer is too unrelated as a matter of law to be an element of. Okay, pain but and suffering. I take
7: it your argument is that the the mere fact that there is an association between asbestosis and a higher risk of developing cancer depending on whether you smoke and so on is not enough of an association to support a in effect a separate element of damages for for fear of cancer Yes, your Honor. Uh, what is your authority for that in other words you're saying there's got to be some kind of a different or more intense causal relationship than simply uh, this association that can statistically be shown. I, I think what's, I, the, what's the basis for Buck,
1: that? Buckley, frankly, is, is, is close to anything on that, on that score because Buckley says even if you accept as an article of faith, as I think the Court did, that each of those individuals who'd been exposed to asbestos felt that he, he or she would be more seriously Did they than have risk.
7: asbestosis? No, none of them. No, they no. didn't. And the point here is that there is proof of asbestosis And there is a statistical showing that you don't deny, I think, of a a higher degree of risk, however the causal chain works, uh, which associates asbestosis with fear of cancer. So this is not a Buckley situation, and my question is, why isn't that statistical association sufficient to ground uh, an instruction allowing for, for uh, compensation for fear that results from this association.
1: There the, are the two answers to that, Justice Souter. In the, in the first place, the common, there is no strong common law doctrine that says that, those, that that kind of a disconnect between the damages is a, is a core element of the, what the common law routinely grants. For
7: well, you call them, it a disconnect, he calls it a connect. What it is there there is, I take it an undenied statistical association between asbestosis uh, and a probability of developing cancer right. and that's the basis for the claim of the fear. Why is, is that inconsistent with a common law theory of pain and suffering
1: damages Well the, the, the core of the pain and suffering the pain and suffering theory is that it's a, it is a fright that emanates directly out of the particular condition you have, which is asbestosis.
7: All right. If you want to use that kind of terminology, I don't see why you haven't got it here. The reason these people are worried is that they've got asbestosis, and people with asbestosis have a higher chance of developing cancer. Isn't that enough out of? No. Even
1: if you accept that premise, Justice Souter, you still have to confront the overall policies of the Federal Employers Liability Act and the question of whether not allowing a recovery that might otherwise be legitimate. And that is precisely what the court said. So are
7: you saying that even if the common law allowed it, we should not allow it under the Act, or the Act doesn't allow
1: it. Well, I don't think the common law clearly allows okay, it. Okay.
7: Have you got any authority for that proposition, no, because that an association between these two conditions is insufficient to support a damage award?
1: There are lower court, we cite the Pennsylvania Supreme Court decision, the 11th Circuit decision. There are decisions out there that have said we're not going to allow fear of cancer in cases involving well, it there does, But there I,
5: does appear to be a minority of jurisdictions that have said and have held that you have to show as a plaintiff in a case like this um, a verifiable causal nexus between cancer and the injury suffered in cases where you're dealing with exposure to a hazardous material. Maybe that's a reasonable requirement, but it appears to be a minority view. Are you suggesting that we should adopt that here?
1: Well, I'm not asking you to—I don't think the answer to this case— resides in the common law, because I think the common law is essentially a model. There are cases on both sides. are
5: you — do you think we should adopt an interpretation of FILA that says there has to be some verifiable causal nexus?
1: Absolutely, Justice O'Connor. And the reason to do that is — Do you
5: acknowledge that 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 is a view that is generally a minority view in the country? I, I,
1: I'll, I'll concede that it is a minority view in the sense that there are maybe five cases on one side, yeah. three or four on the other. This is not an area that's been litigated sufficiently to be able it to say where the sense, trends are.
5: But I just want to know where we are.
1: Right. Here. Well, I've only got two or three cases that identify it in the, context, the way you, do, you just did, Justice O'Connor, and my, my colleague on the other side will identify four or five cases that don't, that don't impose that requirement. But, but what remains absolutely critical in the analysis of this case, I think is the core policy that this Court identified in Gottschall and in Buckley that says if you don't have a clear answer from the common law, you have to look to see whether or not this particular damages remedy creates the possibility of unpredictable and unlimited damages. And that's the reason why the Court needs to adopt a more restrictive view of the standard to be applied under the Federal Employers Liability Act. That may not be the rule that would be required as a matter of common law in any particular state. but under FELA. The notion that you're going to create unlimited liability in circumstances in which the plaintiffs are allowed significantly reduced uh, requirements in order to prove the basis for their claim suggests that this Court has consistently taken the position that it must cut back and not allow, on a category basis, on a categorical basis, not allow damages to extend.
6: I mean, what — unlimited damage? I don't know what you want us to do. What if — what if the statistical — chance of your getting cancer if you have uh, uh, asbestosis is uh, uh, is your chances are doubled. Would that be enough to create the kind of a fear that we could allow damages for?
1: No, I don't, I don't think so, See, Justice.
6: What if it's Sophia. 90% certain that if you if you have developed asbestosis, you, you will develop cancer. I
1: think that would be a different case. I think once you get past somewhere between more likely fifty than not, and
6: ninety percent,
1: I think when you get past more likely than not that you will, that you will incur cancer. There's a risk at, then at, at that point. But remember, the, the flip side of this is the two disease rule, and that's an important element in how the court ought to analyze this problem. Because not only by allowing fear of cancer damages now, you essentially say to the world, the is the limit. Inconsistent with what the court said in Gottschall and Buckley. The flip side is, if you don't allow the fear of cancer damages now, but allow fear of, but allow the plaintiff to come back after he or she contracts cancer and allows as a part of that recovery for fear of cancer, then the people who are most seriously injured are made whole at the appropriate time and the appropriate circumstances. Mr. Phillips,
5: I know your light is on, but there's a second question, and you haven't even talked about it: the the joint and several. Liability, the apportionment. apportionment.
1: Thank you, Justice. And
5: I wasn't sure that there was any support uh, in the statute or in the evidence at trial here uh, for how some apportionment should have been made.
1: Well, the the, the quick answer on apportionment is that in 1908, it was absolutely clear there was several liability. You're only liable for the injuries you cause. That's embodied, I think, in the statutory language that says that the railroad is responsible for the injuries while employed. That's, that language has been interpreted as recognizing we only pay for the things that we cause. The third restatement both in whole or in part. But that goes to the question of what you need to show a jury in order to get a negligence claim claim to the jury in the first instance. It doesn't say you're liable for the entirety of the damages in whole or in part. It it's, could be
4: read to say that.
1: It could, but I don't think that's the most natural reading of that particular language, and I don't think it's an appropriate one, where the policies in 1908 and the policies of the law in the third restatement quite clearly say that you should apportion, because that is the fair way in order to ensure that a defendant is not, does not, is not forced to overcompensate.
4: It's really um, a question of who should bear the burden of bringing in those other people. If it's joined in several, you could join other people. On your view, you, you say to the plaintiff, unless, plaintiff, you bring in all these other people, you can only get a small piece from any particular one.
1: Right. And I think the statute and the existing common law clearly suggest that the right answer is that because you've reduced the burden of the plaintiff in order to get into court and to be able to make a case, the quid pro quo for that ought to be that you only hold the railroad liable for the amount of the injury it caused. And here it is not contested that, in Mr. Butler's case, as the, as the prototype example of it, he had three months of exposure when he was with Norfolk and Western. He had 30 years of exposure with others. That is a reasonable basis on which to, on which to apportion for cause. And, that, and, and no one has contested that. I'd, I'd uh, reserve the balance of my time.
0: Very well, Mr. Phillips. Uh, Mr. Sammons, will hear from you.
8: <coughs> Mr. Chief Justice, it may please the court. Respondents may not recover damages under FILA, for their anxiety about developing cancer in the future as part of their emotional injuries from the separate disease of asbestosis. The overwhelming majority of courts that have considered the relationship between asbestosis and cancer have concluded that they are separate diseases that result in separate injuries to the plaintiff and May give I rise to separate...
3: That. May I ask this question? I really wanted to ask it to Mr. Phillips time was running out. Would you draw a distinction between a, a case in which the asbestosis actually is a cause of cancer, as opposed to a case like this in which asbestos and cancer asbestosis and cancer are the, are the result of a common cause.
8: Uh, Your honour, I do think there would be a difference between those two instances. Here, the court can look to the evolving Uh, uh, tort law principles in cases involving asbestos, where the the overwhelming majority of courts have concluded they are indeed separate diseases with no causal connection between them, only in the sense that they both stem from the same exposure to
3: asbestos. So you would say that in this case, then, if it were true, which I understand it is not, that the asbestosis itself is a contributing cause to cancer, that then there would be liability
8: Well, Your Honor, I I think that, you know, the the court may still need to look at what type, what what exactly the causal connection is, and it would still need to take into account uh, both the text and the purposes of fila, and and in particular the concern. But taking all those things
3: into account, what do you do in a case in which the cancer is a a result of the asbestosis rather than a result of a common source?
8: I I do think, Your Honor, that if if the cancer, in fact, uh, results directly from the disease of asbestosis and that, that puts you more directly in the category of pain and suffering damages that would be available traditionally in tort law and that probably would be recoverable there. But that, isn't
6: that a jury question? Do, do we know for sure that the one does not lead to the other?
8: I do think, Your Honor, that, that this Court can look to the experience of, of courts that have considered the relationship between the two diseases. And have adopted legal rules to govern the disposition of these claims and have concluded that they are separate diseases that result in separate injuries and and give rise to separate causes of action and I think this court can look to that and and, and can conclude that as a matter of do, law both the because of,
6: do the respondents agree with you on that on that factual point
8: that the majority of courts have concluded no no
6: that that uh, that uh, asbestosis does not lead to cancer but rather is, is produced by the same uh, by the same cause that produces cancer, uh,
8: Your Honour. I do think that the respondents have taken that position in this case. On page 20 of their brief, they say that the relationship between asbestosis and cancer is twofold. First, the the asbestosis confirms the extent and severity of the initial exposure to asbestos, which, of course, under Buckley is not a separate injury or impact that can give rise to liability under Fila. And second that they both, both um, the cancer and the asbestosis would result from the same negligent conduct of the defendant. But I do not read respondents uh, to, to be alleging in this court that there is any causal relationship between cancer and asbestosis in terms of asbestosis actually turning into cancer. There may be a correlation, but, but you know, that the, the reasonableness of the fears is really not
3: The question question I had is if there is a cause of correlation, if 50% of the people who have contracted asbestosis as a result of exposure to asbestos will also contract cancer, why does that matter? That's what I didn't quite see. Because I I I understand, I think you do correctly state they agree with you on the facts on this.
8: Yes, Your Honor. I think that in in terms of of the existing uh, tort law principles that, as this Court noted in in, in Gottschall and, and even prior to that, around the time of, of uh, the enactment of FILA, that pain and suffering damages are limited to those damages that flow directly from the injury that allows you to sue. Those, and that both
4: of those cases were a, a, a self-standing claim of emotional distress. It wasn't pinned to any existing injury. Here the difference, and at least as Portrayed by the judge who made it part of pain and suffering, is you do have an injury. You have the asbestosis. And one of the elements of damages is pain and suffering, and this is included in pain and suffering. At least that's the way the judge saw it, as distinguished from Buckley and Gottschall, which were self standing claims of emotional distress, not tied to any pre existing injury.
8: Yes, Your Honor. That, that is the way the court below approached the question. We think the problem with that is that as the overwhelming majority of courts that have considered the issue of the relationship between the diseases have concluded, they are separate diseases that result in separate injuries and separate causes of action. And the text but of Fila doesn't it
4: matter what form? i I'm familiar with one of those cases, and that was the question, when does the statute of limitations start to run when you get the virulent form of cancer? Does it begin to run when you got the asbestosis because that should have tipped you off and you should have sued then. The answer in that context, and there are many courts that say that the cancer is a separate claim, is not necessarily what it should be in this context.
8: We do think it is instructive, however, Your Honor, and that's particularly true because Fela provides for liability to any person suffering injury while employed for such injury. And we think consistent with the text of that statute, which limits the employer's liability to the injury that's actually suffered and not the, the fear of suffering a future injury in, in the future, that the rule we are uh, propounding today is the most consistent with that text and the most consistent with the purposes uh, and, and policy considerations this Court articulated in both Gottschall and Buckley. You, and did a
4: particular say, you said in your brief that it's a question of not whether but when, because when you get cancer, if you get cancer, you get the damages for past, present and future pain and suffering. But that's not quite right, is it? Because you are leaving out the category of person who has asbestosis and never gets cancer, which will be most of these people. Those people, for them it is a question of whether, not when, right?
8: It is true, Your Honor, that people who now have asbestosis and fear getting cancer in the future, may never get cancer. In fact, the, over, the overwhelming number of them won't get cancer. Um,
4: and then they, they never, they, they can never collect for this alleged that,
8: that is true, Your Honor, and that's also true for the snowmen of Metro North that were at issue in Buckley. The, the court, this court did not say though their fears were not reasonable. In fact, the Court of Appeals in that case had found that they were, what this court said was that it didn't fit within the common law categories that allowed recovery because the exposure itself was not an impact or injury. And our position is that, While the asbestosis gives them an ability to to sue for their injuries related to that asbestosis, they cannot reach back to that initial exposure and recover the damages that were precluded in in Buckley. But here,
7: here we've got something more. We've got the proof that this is a serious risk, and that proof consists of the fact that asbestosis has in fact developed.
8: That is correct, and they can recover for all of their harms related directly to that asbestosis, but our position is that they can't recover for their fears of the future disease of cancer. I I
7: know that that's your position, but once we cross that threshold, as we have in this case, uh, the threshold that that shows that the fear is, in fact, a serious one because at least asbestosis has now developed, why isn't their fear of cancer just as reasonable whether that fear rests (laughs) upon the fact that in 10% of asbestosis cases, the asbestosis progresses to cancer, which isn't true. Or on the other hand, in, in the same percentage of asbestosis cases, cancer will also develop as a result of the common cause for which the employer
8: is liable. Why is the fear any less reasonable in either of those cases? Your Honor, with respect, we don't think the question is whether their fears are reasonable, but their question is whether their fears are recoverable at this time.
7: Well, I, re- and, I, I know that, and one of the questions we want to know uh, in, in determining whether recovery is possible is whether the fear is reasonable. And we do one, one threshold test that we all agree on is the fear has at least got to be confirmed by some physical manifestation, okay? We've got this here. Once the physical manifestation is shown, why is reasonable fear, why should reasonable fear not be enough for recovery, whether the causal connection goes from asbestosis to cancer or common cause to cancer?
8: Your Honor, we think that one of the primary reasons why it should not be enough, the reasonableness of the fear should not be enough in and of itself, even assuming for a moment that the statistics that are that are, were in the evidence here are, are, are in fact um, uh, sufficiently uh, conclusive to, to, to draw those assumptions. I mean, I do think it's important to remember that this court in Buckley referred to these same types of figures as being uncertain and controversial, and I think that that description is probably still true here. But but the, pr- the purposes and policies of FILA, which this court recognized in Buckley, and in particular the fear that that plaintiffs with relatively minor injuries now will come into court being drawn by the pers- per- the opportunity to get front-loaded, significant damages for future harms will end up frustrating the system and will, and will end up hurting the plaintiffs that in fact develop cancer later. And I think that this case implicates those policies and concerns of Fila and tort law generally uh, it, just as much as, as was the case in Buckley. The, 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 vast majority, the number of the people that will actually get cancer in the future is, is relatively low and there is a significant risk. Thank writ- you Mr.
0: Sammons. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Lazarus we'll hear from you.
9: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the only issue raised by the first question presented in the sur petition is whether the trial court's jury instruction correctly described the legal standard for when a physically injured plaintiff can recover for related emotional distress injury. And the sufficiency of the evidence and the jury's application of that legal standard to the evidence at trial is not one of the questions presented in this case. And it is quite clear that the The question, presented
0: doesn't speak in terms of the instruction as I read it.
9: No, but the the question poses a, a, a pure question of law, and that is whether when you have a physical injury, what the relationship has to be between the emotional distress and the physical injury. And our argument, Your Honor, is that under traditional tort law, it is not required that the emotional distress immediately accompany the physical injury that it have its own physical manifestations, uh, that it be severe. Tort law, as this court explained in the Metro North case, approaches the recovery of emotional distress injuries from a categorical perspective, and tort law categorically distinguishes between two different situations. First, the situation where one has a standalone claim for negligent infliction of emotional distress, where the emotional injury is itself the element of the offense, the injury element. And second, the so called parasitic damage context, where there is a threshold physical injury which supplies the essential element. And what many courts do is they impose very significant limitations on the recovery of emotional stress in the standalone context, such as physical manifestations, immediacy, and severity. But you this case not right. This, right, the jury instruction is reproduced on page 573 of the joint appendix.
5: Where do we? 573.
9: 573 on the joint appendix. And that jury instruction makes it absolutely clear that respondents were entitled to recover for their reasonable fear of cancer as part of their overall damages, only to the extent that that fear related to — the Court's words — related to proven physical injury. And there is absolutely no merit to petitioners — Do some
5: jurisdictions go further these days and require there be a reasonable causal nexus —
9: Uh, Your Honor, uh, almost no jurisdictions do. There are really only two cases.
5: I thought there were a few. Uh, But
9: almost all the cases go the other way. And and the reason, Your Honor, is because uh, there's some confusion in petitioners' argument here about what pain and suffering means. If you look at the jury instruction very closely on page 573, the trial judge in this case was very careful and knew exactly what he was doing. In the paragraph right before the fear of cancer, paragraph. He refers to the entitlement of a physically injured plaintiff to to recover for physical and mental pain and suffering. Uh, In the next paragraph, he refers to reasonable fear of cancer. He refers only to mental pain and suffering. And this is a longstanding distinction uh, in tort law. Physical pain and suffering is the kind of pain which is immediate and intimately associated with the bodily injury.
2: All that is true, what you say. But I felt the question was open And the reason that I thought it was open is because probably I once learned that this area of the law rose out of an English case where somebody is watching a coffin fall off in an accident. And the rule was that you can't recover unless something hits you. But what you were recovering for was the coffin and the pain and suffering that a family member would feel. That was immediate, directly related, to the accident, and quite clearly present and measurable. This is the kind of thing that is not immediate. It's a fear of something way in the future. It is very hard to determine whether it is right or wrong, and it has no causal relation to the physical thing. And therefore, I thought that it's open.
9: Your Honor, it's really. And you want to
2: say, "I'll look it up," but if you, you want to say it's absolutely not open, I mean, they have, you know, lots of briefs where they've made a pretty good case. It's at least open.
9: It's open and shut. Okay. Um, if, if, one, <laughs> if one looks to the Restatement of Torts, section 456, which describes well-settled, widely applied, and it describes the circumstances when a physically injured plaintiff can recover for related emotional distress injuries. Uh, it fits this case, and it includes in comment c. It expressly denies the validity of their physical manifestation no, requirement? No, I,
2: I mean, you saw their reply brief. And their reply brief to that is that the underlying phrase, the italicized phrase, or from conduct which causes it, is not really what's at issue. What's issue are the words in that called emotional disturbance. And the question is, what kind of emotional yes. disturbance? Yes. And I think that their argument is, which if I put numbers on it, is each one of us in this room has one in four chance that we will die of cancer. And the difference between us and a plaintiff in this case is that he has a one in, one in five, wait, we have one in five, one in five, and he has one in four. And what they're saying is, I think, that the difference between a one in five chance of dying of cancer and a difference of one in four chance of dying in cancer is intangible, hard to measure in anyone's psychology. Nobody really makes such distinctions rationally, and therefore don't open this up to juries awarding large amounts of money.
9: Your Honor, uh one really can't, in the beginning, start to entertain their evidence that they've introduced, which wasn't part of the trial record in this case. The trial No, record
2: I don't think their evidence is relevant. Right. I would say this is a question that's being put to us as a matter of law, Right. and it is up to us to look at the numbers. Right. And in reaching those numbers I gave you, I've assumed everything in your favor. That is, it's really because you're a railroad and not the kind of... Uh, thing that was involved in the studies you cite, it could be a lot less than what I say, but it's not going to be more.
9: Well, actually, it it may well be more, but let's put put that aside. Uh, What is quite clear, Your Honor, as this Court explained in the Metro-North case, is that just because there are background risks, that doesn't mean that one can't have a reasonable apprehension based on an increased risk. For instance, it is 100% sure, Your Honor, that every one of us in this room will die. Uh, We have a background risk. But the fact that someone through negligent conduct causes us a physical injury, which increases our risk of dying sooner, uh, does not mean we we can recover for that. And the the place to look in the restatement of torts, Your Honor, to see that this is a classic thing that one can recover for, if you look to section 456, you look to comment C, and then it referenced referenced restatement section 905. And and it says that when you have a physical injury, then it triggers the full panoply of emotional stress injuries. And sec- in Section 905 of the Restatement of Torts describes what is encompassed by emotional stress, and Comment E describes how it goes, as always, to fear, anxiety, apprehension of future consequences. Well, Mr. Lazarus,
0: Mr. Lazarus what, what if you put a physician on the stand and the physician says this man was 25 years old when he was injured? He, he ordinarily would be expected to live to be 75. But as a result of this injury, he's only going to live to be 72. Now, is that the sort of thing that's compensable? Well,
9: Your Honor, I don't don't know. I don't know. I don't doubt, Your Honor, that in tort law that there is a level of probability and risk below which one could say as a matter of law there's not a reasonable apprehension. Uh, I don't think, though, in this case, first of all, that there's any question that statistics support a reasonable apprehension. But even more importantly, the question whether they do or don't in this case is not one of the issues here. The issue is whether that's enough. The issue is whether you also May
4: I ask you on that on that point, it, let's for a moment not think of ourselves as lawyers. Here are two people, the person in Buckley, the snowman, and the person who has asbestosis. Both of those people may have a real fear of cancer. Um, and we may find them credible witnesses. I thought in the Buckley situation that one concern is it's too easy to make this up. And for some people facing that risk, they'll say, well, yeah, I might be run over tomorrow. It doesn't bother me. Isn't the real problem that the fear of something, when that fear doesn't have the physical manifestation, that these things are too easy to make up? too uncontrollable and i frankly can't see the difference from the point of view of a sufferer between the person in buckley and the person here the person in in the grand central station case could say i had the same fear that that person has he hasn't proved his fear any more than i proved mine why should he recover and not me
9: your honor because as the court i think explained quite well in buckley Way tort law approaches the question is, ca- is on a categorical basis and distinguishes between those with physical injury, because if you have that threshold physical injury, that gives you the corroborating evidence you need that you have now a legitimate plaintiff, a legitimate plaintiff who has established a cause of action. You're not adding new cases to the docket, and even more importantly,
4: as the well, court What's of court- more legitimate? and There was no doubt about the conditions under which the people worked in Grand Central Station, that they were exposed to asbestos, that. They should have been told much earlier about their exposure, and they must have been very angry that they weren't told.
9: Well, Your Honor, first of all, those who have asbestosis, as the trial record in this case referred, those of have asbestosis have a statistically higher significance of getting the other kinds of cancers. Because It's not just a mere exposure unimpaired. And what the asbestosis requirement does, by requiring that kind of serious physical injury, is as... Everyone understood in the railway industry argued in Metro-North. It dramatically limits the number of possible plaintiffs.
0: Mr. Mr. Leisler, is there increased chance of cancer because they have asbestosis or because the asbestosis recovery originates from their exposure to asbestos, and it's the exposure to asbestos, not the asbestosis, that will cause
9: cancer? Your Honor, we do not know. And no one knows whether the asbestosis itself transforms itself into cancer. Well,
0: I th- I, uh, then, then you do challenge the s- statement by your opponents that asbestosis itself cannot ch-
9: change into cancer? No, Your Honor, their own expert. Well, no, 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 wait a minute. Yeah, yeah, I, I yes, asked you yes. a question. I, What's I, the answer? I do. I do but challenge do that. Challenge it. Their own expert, uh, Your Honor, uh, on page 470 of the joint appendix, Dr. Wren, their expert, testified on page 470 that one could not contract lung cancer from exposure to asbestos until one had asbestosis. Uh, We're willing to admit that the science is more unclear that asbestos, whether it actually transforms itself or not, we don't know. And we don't think it's a matter of law, it's necessary. It was their expert at trial uh, who testified that actually to get lung cancer from asbestos exposure, it was a necessary prerequisite to first have asbestosis. We think
6: That question wasn't put to the jury. I mean, the fact is that the jury was not required to find that the fear was, was a fear that the asbestosis would, would, uh, would turn into cancer.
9: That's absolutely right, Your Honor. And we, uh, we think that was not an error in the jury instruction. There's many cases out there. Let me refer to this one case, a case they cite in the reply brief on why, page 2. Why
5: wouldn't that be error? I mean, uh, the instruction does say that a plaintiff who's demonstrated that he's developed a reasonable fear of cancer related to the proven physical injury from asbestos can be compensated for the fear.
9: Right, and it has to be related to the proven physical injury, uh, and it, it was in this case. If
5: I can give the example that, It's so, in the same instruction, the court says you cannot award damages for cancer or any increased risk.
9: Right, Your Honor, cancer. and that's where the court got it absolutely... Which
5: absolute, is so contradictory.
9: No, no, it's not, Your Honor. What, what the court is doing here is exactly what... Courts do who adopt a separate disease rule which says you can only recover for your present injuries now and you can't recover for future injuries. The cancer itself or the risk is a future injury.
10: I was going to ask this. What, what if one of these, if you prevail, uh, and then one of these plaintiffs develops cancer? I assume he can go in and sue again?
9: Uh, that is right, yes. For the, I, for the there, cancer. Is there some kind of a
10: discount now for the for the fear that he's no, no. Suffered. Just, just
9: like if you, there's separate cause of action for assault and battery. Those are two different injuries. The, the apprehension yeah. of something is a separate injury. And, and for these plaintiffs, the response, it is a. Charity. So the
10: fear that you're going to die of cancer is compensable oh. before you get it, and then it's compensable again after you. No, get
9: it? no. The, 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 fear would not be. The cancer would be. Well, I thought
10: that I thought that the, you could recover for the fear in both cases under your. Sorry,
9: I, I wasn't. I wasn't. If you've recovered once. You aren't going to be allowed to recover again. So there
10: would be a discount?
9: Uh, yes, if, if you brought the All right, first. So then
10: your first answer was you, you changed your first. I am
9: sorry. I thought your question was whether they could recover for cancer in the second one. I didn't understand you were referring to. It. Do, yeah. do we
10: have cases in the law where you give discounts for the first verdict?
9: Uh, Your Honor, I, I'm not sure. Uh, I don't think this, this issue has, has come up, but I don't think it's a bar to the recovery here. If, if I can refer to the radiation burn case that they referred to on page two of the reply brief.
10: Well, well but it indicates that maybe, maybe the, uh, the, the recovery now is problematic.
9: No, Your Honor, it's not problematic because we have a present injury, and when you have a present physical injury and you have a present emotional injury, an apprehension based on that, those well, are don't two present injuries. do you think
5: that emotional uh, fear ought to be one that is reasonable? Yes. And a causal nexus there between the asbestosis and the fear?
9: Well, Your Honor, we do think there's a causal nexus. There should be. We, we, there but we do think there's a, there's a causal nexus here. And under the restatement of torts, right, there are two different possible re, uh, causal nexus under Section 456 of the restatement. Uh, we actually think both of those are met. Uh, And that is, we think that the fear is caused by the physical injury. It's also caused by the same negligent conduct. But that is also a sufficiency of the evidence question. And what they are positing here is what the legal standard should be for physically injured plaintiffs and the recovery for related emotional distress harm. An example, the Anderson case they cite on page two of the reply brief, a radiation burn case, which they say is distinct from this case. It's exactly the same as this case.
2: I think you're right. And the dog bite cases support you, and the radiation cases support you. And if it's cut and dried, as you say, then you win. But if, when I look at all this stuff again, and I come to the conclusion, if if I were to come to the conclusion that it wasn't cut and dried, then I'm much more at sea. And I want you to see why. One was the reason I gave, which is the risk problems. And the other, which is driving that, and I'd just like you to comment on this, is, is my concern that if we begin to compensate people for fear of small changes in risks when the law doesn't, is open on the point, what will happen in the asbestos cases, and that was their initial point, is that we will, it's $200 billion at stake, and the fund will run dry when the people who really get the cancer come into court, the cupboard will be bare. And and I think that's a, a serious policy problem uh, and it's worrying me quite a lot. And, and that's why I keep coming back to the open nature of this.
9: Your Honor, um, I, I think that the way to address that kind of issue is not to change decades of settled tort. Well, I say, is there any answer yes, there other is. than
2: the law is clear? There is. Clear. There
9: is. And what can be done in a case like that is the defendant in that case can request a, a verdict form which requires the jury to allocate out, and that would allow a judge and an appellate, if appropriate, to review. And jury trials courts
0: yeah, all the time. That isn't automatic in most jurisdictions, Mr. Lazarus. You, you can't say, I, I, I want a special verdict, and the, if the court says, no, I don't think I'll give you one, that's pretty much the end of it.
9: Your isn't? Honor, they didn't request one here, but that is the proper way to address the issue, and that's why you see.
6: I don't understand what you're saying. What, allocate out, how does that? The money is still paid to this claimant so that when the person who who actually has cancer comes comes into court, this company is bankrupt. no but,
9: but your honor, it addresses justice Breyer's concern, and that is it allows you to have a record upon which one can make sure that the jury hasn't awarded a disproportionate amount based upon this one element, that you don't have the tail wagging the dog.
4: Well, what's disproportionate? Suppose you take one plaintiff who is very nervous, very apprehensive, and for that person, this increased risk is going to be uh, much more aggravated. Then take another person who is subject to the same risk but has a thicker skin and say, well, I'll take it in stride.
9: Well, Your Honor, it's a reasonable apprehension. This is why there's an objective standard which applies to emotional recovery which doesn't require a physical. It has to meet an objective standard. If someone has a very, very thick skin in tort law and they, in fact, as a result of that, don't suffer damage, then they haven't suffered damage. If they have a very, very, very thin skin and they suffer a lot of damage, then they don't recover everything uh, unless it's a reasonable apprehension.
4: If the person gets cancer, and I take it you agree with the government that such a person could get past present and future anxiety uh, as part of pain and suffering but suppose that person had earlier had asbestos and then brings this claim for lung cancer couldn't if you you prevail today the defendant say well at least for the apprehension in the past you know you're precluded because you could have brought that claim when you got asbestosis.
9: Your Honor, that might be possible. That is not an issue which has been addressed here before this court, and I haven't looked at the issue preclusion there uh, between the two. What is clear is if you have a current physical injury. It would be injury,
4: claim preclusion. I'm,
9: yeah, right, and it's not an issue which has been briefed here because I think that when you have a case like this with a present physical injury and you have a present emotional injury based on that, or as this court actually said in Metro North, related to uh, the physical injury, That's sufficient. Uh, I I would like to address the second issue with the court. Before uh, you you
3: ask, please. Just one quick question: Do you agree with Mr. Phillips' appraisal of the facts that we should assume that the fear of cancer was the major element of damage?
9: No, Your Honour. All one one has to assume here is that there was sufficient evidence that a reasonable jury could give some money uh, based on, on fear of cancer, not that they had to. Uh, and not certainly that they gave $4.4 million, just a, sufficient evidence that a reasonable jury could have given a dollar or some money. That's all that would be necessary. Uh, the, the second, sorry. Was
10: there, was there testimony here that plaintiff A had a heavy as, or severe asbestosis and plaintiff B had mild? And was it based on any um, lung x-rays to show that this, this person is very badly infected the other, wasn't
9: Yes, it? Your Honor. There is, there's lots of record evidence in this case to establish the asbestosis and, the, and, and how there may have been different degrees of asbestosis.
10: All right. And since that dependent on dosage, why isn't this a, a, a case uh, in which we can apportion causation?
9: Your Honor, for a very simple reason. The first reason is that we think that phila itself uh, on its face actually directs uh, there to be Uh, joint and several liability when you have single injuries. Uh, That's our first argument, that FILA on its face answers the question, that FILA provides that the railroad should be liable, quote, for such injury or death resulting in whole or in part from the negligence of the railroad.
10: Correct me if I'm wrong. Is it a, a principle of tort law that if causation can be apportioned, uh, that the injury is uh, that there is is then several liability and not well, joint.
9: Your Honor, or am I wrong about no, that? No. The, the background principle of, of the common law of torts here uh, is if there, are dis- if there is a single injury, uh, then there's joint several liability unless there's a, unless there's a reasonable basis for apportionment. Our, our threshold and, argument. And, and
10: since asbestos is, is, is peculiarly related to dosage and exposure, why isn't that? a a proper ground for apportionment.
9: Assuming that Fielder doesn't answer the question, let me answer it based upon the common law. Because the the, the plaintiff has the burden, sorry, the defendant, petitioner, has the burden in that case to establish, uh, one, what the doses were, and two, what the dose relationship was. And the one thing we know here, the the prototype example that Mr. Phillips referred to is Mr. Butler. And the fact is that Mr. Butler apparently worked for three months exposed to asbestos for petitioner and for many, many years exposed Uh, To asbestos at other workplaces. While we don't know what the dose relationship is, Your Honor, we do know for the record the one thing the dose relationship isn't is time. One can't compare one time to another. Let me tell you why we know that. On page 420 of the joint appendix, their expert testified that one is far more likely to contract asbestosis from high concentrations over a short period of time than low concentrations over a long period of time. And there's a reason for that. As Dr. Brody explains on page 87 of the joint appendix, the lungs can naturally rid themselves of the fibers at the low concentrations. It's only at the high concentrations, the macrophages. it's only at the high concentrations that the lungs can't rid themselves of the fibers. While we have no idea how low the concentrations levels were at these other workplaces, we do know how high the concentration levels were at petitioners' workplace because Mr. Butler testified on page 249 of the joint appendix that during those three months, he worked in the location of Petitioner's Workplace where the asbestos concentrations were at the highest. Mr. Butler testified that he worked in the room where the engines were stripped of their fibers and more fibers were placed on. He testifies on page 249. He looks at these same pictures, which are trial exhibits that are reproduced in our brief. He looks at these pictures and he says, yes, that's the kind of room I worked in. This is 249 to 250. Yes, that's the kind of exposure I faced. So we okay. know he had the very high concentration. Well, now,
0: how, how do we know that? You're saying he worked in the place with the highest concentration so far as the, uh, the railroad is concerned. But how do, we, how do we know how that compares
9: with where he worked elsewhere? Your Honor, we have no idea, because they, they never introduced and sought to introduce any evidence. And what we do know is that very low concentrations. Here we can turn to the RAND report, which they filed with this court, lodged with the court just two weeks ago. The RAND report. And the testimony this case makes absolutely clear that in low concentration employment centers, at low concentration exposures, one is very unlikely to have any kind of physical injury, asbestosis, or cancer ever developed, which is why there are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of plaintiffs, many of which come from low exposure, which, as the Rand report makes clear, is not likely to lead to any kind of disease. We, know, we have no idea how low it was here, we know how high it was here. I have no doubt, Your Honor, that petitioner would have been very hard-pressed at trial to actually show what the doses were and to show what the dose relationship is. But what I do know is that whatever their reason was at trial for never trying to introduce this evidence, and they never, if you look at their motion, when they made the motion for this jury instruction, they never even remotely suggest what the basis of proportion would be. But whatever, whatever their strategic reason for doing that at trial, what is absolutely clear is they're not allowed in the first instance to come to the United States Supreme Court and proffer newspaper articles, magazine articles, selected journal articles, and try to argue that there is a reasonable basis for apportionment, or they're entitled to a remand to litigate an issue which they failed to litigate in the first instance. Uh, The simple truth, Your Honor, is that at trial in this case, the respondents established all of their essential elements of their negative cause of action. They established their physical injury Uh, and they received a jury award, which certainly compared to the jury awards that I see mentioned uh, in the amicus briefs, is a jury award which seems relatively modest Uh, and certainly a jury award which on its face doesn't suggest that there was some outrageous amount given uh, for reasonable fear of
3: cancer. May I just ask, you You say there was no evidence of what the degree of exposure in other areas and so forth and so on. Didn't they make any offers of proof, with, or did they just prove the time that they worked? They,
9: know, they, they really just proved the time. We you know the yeah. nature of the work, but what we don't know, Your Honor. Oh, but then that would be a
3: question of the weight of that evidence rather than whether they preserved the
9: point. Well, you're, I'm not, I'm not they, they never offer a basis of apportionment. We'd have to know, and the evidence of trial made clear, to know the dose and dose relationship you would have to know the airflow rates, the pathways at what of exposure. Point in, the,
3: in the trial, did it become clear by a ruling of the trial judge that they could not rely on the
9: exposure in other areas? Your, Your Honor, it was, it was, it was, they were not denied this opportunity at trial to introduce the evidence uh, with respect to the uh, non railroad employment. Uh, and uh, you can see that because they actually did do some cross examination. They did try to introduce the evidence in three months. They did try to refer to the other workplaces. They could have tried to introduce more evidence.
10: Well, well why was that relevant if, if there is a joint liability?
9: Well, we thought it was irrelevant, Your Honor, but they were clearly thinking about the possibility of requesting apportionment instruction, but the fact is they never laid out a reasonable basis. If you look at the memorandum... but they uh,
3: did request an instruction, didn't they?
9: They did request the instruction, but... But the point was preserved. Right, but the trial court was correct in denying the instruction because they had not met their burden of proffering a reasonable basis for apportionment. Uh, And in the absence of that evidentiary basis, the trial court was absolutely correct in denying it. Uh, this was a jury verdict, Your Honors, which was reached. But that
3: theory, then, is that, that the several liability would have been appropriate if the evidence were sufficient.
9: Well, no, Your Honor. Our threshold argument is uh, that it would not. Asbestosis, this is a classic indivisible injury. There are many courts who have, who have talked about this, and they said, well, in theory, asbestosis is dose-related. But, but with the respect, to it. Lazarus,
7: isn't your the bottom line in this argument that this is simply not an issue in the case because
9: they didn't provide yes, a basis? that's absolutely So you're right. saying forget it. That's right. They had the, they had the burden, and they they simply didn't meet their burden.
4: And they say you had the burden.
3: Well, but it seems to me that argument goes to the weight of the evidence they offered, rather than to the, your legal position. I may be missing something.
9: Well, your honor, no. They, they have they have to, as a matter of law, right proffer some kind, and here there's absolutely nothing.
3: But they did, if I remember it, they did proffer evidence as to the time that these people worked in other areas where they were exposed to asbestos, didn't they?
9: There is is some evidence. You're saying that's not enough. There's some evidence of that, but in fact, if you even look to their instruction, they don't even say what the time is the relevant factor. Uh, And I think the evidence at trial shows that time is not even close to establishing what the dose relationship uh, would be. This is very complicated.
7: But aren't you really saying that unless there's an abuse of discretion on the part of the trial judge in refusing to send this to the jury based on what you've just described, insufficiency of evidence on their part, that it's it's not in the case for us. That's absolutely right, Your Honor. Thank you.
0: Very well, Mr. Lazarus. Mr. Phillips, you have two minutes remaining.
1: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. I want to be absolutely clear about the apportionment in this case. We, we put in an instruction on apportionment based on a reasonable basis following Justice Kennedy's analysis of the law, which says if there's a reasonable basis to apportion, you do that. The trial judge did not reject that on the basis of insufficient evidence. What he said at page 179, volume 9 of the transcript is, you got a joint tortfeasor. That tortfeasor is liable for all of the injuries. He said it as a matter of law. It's joint several liability. There is no apportionment. That's the ruling we challenged. That's the legal issue before this court. The second question, then, it, it, with your leave, is to turn well. To but that. should
10: we adopt your position uh, if it's as difficult to, to show this separate causation as uh, your, your brother argues?
1: Well. Dean Prosser said from day one, it's always going to be difficult to apportion, but that's no reason not to have the jury undertake to apportion. There are lots of decisions that juries make that are very hard to make, but but the better rule is to apportion because that's the fair outcome that will arise in these cases. With respect to the fear of cancer damages, the key to this case seems to me is just how big a gatekeeper function the fact of asbestosis can be. And the argument is, asbestosis is extraordinarily easy to diagnose. There are currently 5,500 cases under FILA in West Virginia. Every single one of them involves a claim of asbestosis. Every single one of them will be supported by an expert. What you get is, that's that's not a a gatekeeper. Those cases are going to come in and then you're going to have exactly the kinds of evidence you had in this case. I'm afraid of cancer. Give me whatever you think is the right number. That is the essence of unpredictable and unlimited damages. This Court declined to allow that under FILA, and Buckley, it should decline to allow that under FILA in this case as well. If there are no questions, I'll reserve it.
0: Thank you, Mr. Phillips. The case is submitted.